Good morning, everyone. Hope you had a good Thanksgiving and a good break. Uh, we're back to grace upon grace. Now, we left off on page 113. Before we get there, let's turn back to 111. Just remember where we are. Under the subsection, the fruit of meditation. And if you recall, Kleinig has given us three improper uses of meditation. So that by way of contrast, then he's going to move forward into the positive things. But... Uh, Many people today meditate, uh, meditate, he says, for a sense of euphoria. Christian meditation, meditation upon God's word, may give you a sense of euphoria or well-being, but then again it may not. You may run against an accusation of your sin or deeper troubling things. Um, so he makes a distinction there. He also mentions over on page 112, that first full paragraph, that some meditate for as a therapeutic exercise. But again... He contrasts that with Christian meditation upon God's word. It's not that we're meditating in order to draw on our own spiritual potential or heal ourselves through meditation, etc. Um, that's not the point. Uh, the point is to receive God's word and whatever he has to give to us. And then, uh, last but not least, would be some meditate for blatantly pagan purposes, uh, Yoga, Hinduism, meditating on uh, nothing or meditating on oneself or meditating, frankly, on anything other than God's word uh, then causes it to cease to be Christian meditation, properly speaking. So that's the backdrop for where we are now and where Kleining's going to take us. So on 113, where we left off, let's look at that second full paragraph. The purpose of Christian meditation is given by Jesus in his explanation of the parable of the sower in Luke 8, 11 through 15. Here's the text. Now the parable is this. The seed is the word of God. The ones along the path are those who have heard. Then the devil comes and takes away the word from their hearts so that they may not believe and be saved. And the ones on the rock are those who, when they heard the word, receive it with joy. But these have no root. They believe for a while, and in a time of testing, fall away. And as for what fell among the thorns, they are those who hear, but as they go on their way, they are choked by the cares and riches and pleasures of life, and their fruit does not mature. But as for that in the good soil, they are those who hear according to the word, or those who, hearing the word, hold it fast in an honest and good heart and bear fruit with patience. Thus far the text. Here in Luke 8.15, Jesus emphasizes the need for ongoing hearing. He connects fruitful hearing with meditation on the word. For by meditation, a person does not let the word go in one ear and out the other. Rather, the hearer should take hold of the word and keep it in the heart. The purpose of this is to receive the harvest that God wants to produce in the lives of those who follow Jesus. Let's drop down to the footnote there before we go back and make some comments on this section. 
In the footnote we read, Luke's teaching on the purpose of meditation on God's word is evident when we examine how the explanation by Jesus of the good soil in Luke 8.15 diverges from Matthew 13.23 and Mark 4.20. Here Jesus says, And as for that, that is the seed, in the good soil, they are those who, hearing the word, hold it fast in an honest and good heart and bear fruit with patience. As indicated by the italics, Luke makes some significant changes to the explanation of what makes for fruitful hearing. Luke changes the verb for hearing into a participle. In this way, he emphasizes that hearing is a continuous process rather than a singular or occasional event. Luke also shifts the emphasis from understanding the word in Matthew 13.23 and accepting the word in Mark 4.20 to holding it fast. Okay? So you see Luke's emphasis there over and against the other evangelists on this particular text. Okay? So Luke highlights then for us continual hearing in the first place, and then being careful how we hear, particularly by receiving that word um, and holding it fast in an honest and good heart. So then that's going to tie in nicely um, with the text uh, that Kleinig is going to bring up next, take care then how you hear. Take care then how you hear. That's what Jesus says. So, maybe we would say a caveat to the passivity of hearing and the receptive spirituality coming into divine service on a Sunday morning to make it concrete. As opposed to just saying, well, I'm here, that's enough, I've done my part. Uh, as the Lord gives his gifts, we need to take care how we receive them. Take care how we here, actively grasp hold of them, accept them, treasure them, ponder them, um, hold them fast in an honest and good heart, to use uh, Luke's analogy. So there's a sense in which, of, co of course it's true that God makes good soil, right? But there's a sense in which good soil is receptive and receives and uses that which is given. And that's the point that uh, Luke is drawing out here and that Kleinig, Kleinig is highlighting for us. All right, so let's pause there, see if you have any thoughts on uh, that, that text, its teaching, or Kleinig's application of it. Good. All right. So then the top of 14, that first full paragraph where we left off, the heart of the disciple is the seedbed of God's word. By itself, the heart cannot produce a harvest. The power to produce the harvest comes from the word. So the purpose of meditation is to let God's word produce a bumper crop in and through those who receive it. By meditation, disciples take in God's word and keep it in their hearts. The life-giving word changes the barren hearts of hearers into fertile fields. The word increases receptivity of their hearts. The more the hearts of Christ's disciples listen to the word and ponder on it, the more fruitful they become. 
so the word produces the practice of meditation as well as its harvest. But the harvest does not come immediately. Growth is slow and is not always evident, for the roots must go down deep before the, spring, before the stalk springs up. We do not immediately experience the results of meditation as soon as we begin to meditate or even while we meditate. Hence, Luke stresses the need for patience. It is only now that I am reaping the harvest from what I meditated on long ago. I do not usually notice the benefits of my morning meditations until later on in the day. The harvest comes from patient persistence in meditation on God's word. Okay. So, Kleinig taking us through a different facet of meditation on God's word. It's not always the quick fix we hope it will be or might think it will be. Sometimes as we read and study and think and meditate on God's word, there isn't a, a great aha moment or some profound spiritual experience. Sometimes there is. But uh, where there isn't, we shouldn't think, well, that was an ineffective devotion or that was an ineffective study or I wasted my time meditating on that. The fruitfulness of God's word is very much like a seed that is planted and the roots have to go down, and then the stalk springs up. It takes time. There's a development. There's a process. and I found that to be very true, of course, uh, in my own experience, maybe particularly as uh, my, in my experience as a pastor. Uh, as Christians, you all have had that experience, no doubt. And for me, as, as I've highlighted before, it's very often those mysterious parts of Scripture, those mysterious parts of a text that stick out to you for one reason or another as you're reading it in, you know, on Sunday uh, or hearing it preached in su on Sunday, whether you're studying it on your own throughout the week, there's something that sticks there. There's something that's not quite right. There's a question. There's a mystery. There's a puzzle piece that doesn't fit the rest of the pieces. That's a pretty good cue that uh, there's something there. So be patient. Ponder it. Meditate on it. Wait for it. Uh, sooner or later, the Lord will reveal. All right. Any thoughts you have on that? Otherwise, we'll move over to enlightenment. Yeah. So the um, reaping the harvest that he speaks of, that's understanding? I think so. Does that sound right? I think that's right. Yeah, I, I think so. Okay, well, let's go over to enlightenment then. Over on page 115. The parable of the lamp, which comes immediately after the parable of the sower, explains what is meant by the harvest from meditation on God's word. Here's the text. No one, after lighting a lamp, covers it with a jar or puts it under a bed, but puts it on a stand so that those who enter may see the light. For nothing is hidden that will not be made manifest, nor is anything secret that will not become known and come to light. Take care, then, how you hear. For to the one who has, more will be given. And from the one who has not, even what he thinks he has will be taken away. Now, if you don't understand this text, it might strike you as threatening. Uh, and indeed, it might strike us as threatening because if we perceive ourselves as not having anything even that will be taken away. But that's not Jesus' point. 
Jesus' point is precisely that in taking care how we hear, in holding fast the word in an honest and good heart, we have, and to the one who has, more will be given. That's a promise from Christ. So that that word of God in us, no matter how small, no matter how simple, no matter how half understood, God will use and grow and develop within us. That's a promise. So then take care how you hear simply means we can't show up on Sunday morning and expect this to happen automatically or just perceive that, well, I drugged myself in, that's all that's required of me, now the rest is passive, as Kleinig says, as Rhodey says, as Lutheranism says, so uh, let's just sit back and, and let God do his work. Right? I think the same false dichotomy or, or at least false way of thinking uh, is true when, when modern Lutherans ponder sanctification. Like I'm supposed to sit on the couch and wait for God to move me to do something. Right? That's not quite how it works. <laughs> God works in and through you, uh, giving you impulses, giving you suggestion, uh, giving you uh, sometimes external verbal commands by those around you to help or get up or do something. You say, no, I'm just going to wait for the inner prompting of the Holy Spirit. Rather enthusiastic, really, right? Uh, because the external call uh, of vocation is all around us. So then, too, the external call of the word would be, would be not only its content, but also a listen to me. Treasure me. Uh, let me implant myself in you, and I promise to bear fruit. Right? Okay, so there we have it right from Jesus. Take care, then, how you hear. Let's drop down and do one more paragraph of Kleinig, and then I'll pause to see if I've said anything too controversial here, or if Kleinig has. The light of God's grace, the light of his spirit, is hidden in his word so that it can become fixed in our hearts like a lamp in the center of a one-roomed house and illuminate them by its presence. Through persistent meditation, we who have the word receive light and enlightenment from it. As long as we hold the word in our hearts, we will receive more and more blessings from him. But the reverse is also true. Those who do not retain the word in their hearts will lose both the word and the light that it brings. If we go back to the first verses of that text from Luke 8, no one after lighting a lamp covers it with a jar or puts it under a bed, but puts it on a stand so that those who enter may see the light. Let's pause there. If that light is the word and Jesus is teaching us how to hear, what's he saying? No one after lighting a lamp covers it with a jar. So upon hearing his word, we might immediately be tempted to cover it, which of course would be a silly thing to do, but to cover it over, perhaps going back to the previous parable with cares of the world, cares of this world, right? Um, likewise, it is not put under a bed. It would be a terrible place to put a lamp because it would light the bed on fire. I'm pretty sure that this would have drawn snickers as Jesus was su suggesting it because you're thinking of straw beds probably and uh, a lit flame being put under the bed. So <laughs> obviously not. Uh, but nor then do we stick the word of God proverbially under the bed. Right? Um, that's not its place. 
but rather put it on a, on a stand so that those who enter may see its light. Now that stand, in all likelihood, goes pretty much right in the middle of the room, that it goes, that it goes to the whole of the room, right? Casting light everywhere. So then we take God's word, we don't throw it under the bed, we don't put it under a jar, but rather we set it on a stand, a pedestal, if you will, um, so that then it gives its light to the whole of the room. So then that's all instructive. Uh, this is Jesus' instruction on how it is that we should hear and how it is that we should take care regarding uh, how we hear. Okay, well, maybe that exhausts uh, my thoughts on the matter. Do you have any of your own? If I were to say this logically, it would probably take me half a day to write this out, but I'll try. Um, I've, I've thought in, well, just being in the class like we are, that focuses our attention, too. It's a kind of meditation that we probably wouldn't otherwise have. Absolutely. And I was thinking this is something like the game I Spy, which I used to love to play when I was young. And you'd have to know what you were looking for. So everybody knew what we were looking for, and then somebody would hide it. But you have that in your mind, what you're looking for. And God's word tells us, look for this. Mm -hmm. And then finally, you, you, you find it, and it's, it's a wonderful experience. My problem is, <laughs> after I find it and I'm happy and everything, then something will come along, and I'll go, oh dear, I'm not trusting it, and, and, and then, Fortunately, then I'll remember, oh yeah, oh yeah. And it helps us to return to him. Uh -huh. So anyway, uh -huh. for what that's worth. Yeah, yeah, thank you for that. I can't help but think about <clears throat> a visitor to our women's Bible study who said she heard the word for over years and went to Christian college and everything and went through Lutheran school. And yet as an adult, she just can't have faith. And she was like, why? You know? And so I can't help but try to figure that out. And so if you have a light and you're looking at it and you're going, I just don't believe. You know, I just don't have faith. You have to, you have to kind of come to the, I would think you'd have to come to the realization that in your heart you're making a choice of rejecting or accepting. And it's not the light's fault. It's your heart's fault. And we've read that before in you know, in past books, but so you have to come to that point. And she was asking the group, what do I do? Mm -hmm. And it was like, that was a real good question. What do you do when you don't have faith, but you want faith? Yeah. Well, you look at yourself and you realize that you are rejecting. And our advice to her was many, but one of it was pray to God to change your heart. But yeah, it seems to me in most, most instances, and I wasn't part of that one, but most instances where people don't think they have faith and are wrestling with that, you know, a good question to ask is, well, why do you care? Yeah. Right? Um, usually that reveals the fact that they do have faith. It's just very small. And the spiritual oppression and struggle, spiritual battle they've been under has been such to convince them to look at the wrong place, to look at themselves and find only doubt, right? And find only questions and not find an answer outside of themselves. Um, but that's really only half the battle, because then, you, you know, then, then you'll be able to find out if they acknowledge that they care, and then they acknowledge that they 
want to be Christian, then you simply turn them to the external means of grace, what God has done for them, right? Um, are you baptized? Well, then God has already claimed you as his own. So it doesn't matter if your faith is weak or if you don't feel like you're faithful. In fact, the scriptures even say, uh, if we are faithless, he is faithful, right? So it's about what he has done for you, and he has claimed you as your own. So just simply know that that's true, and... You know, and just leave it there. Later on down the line, when, once that word has had its way with him or her, uh, that is faith, right? Because faith looks outside of itself to the things of God, not inside of itself. You know? But those situations are very difficult. Sometimes you're dealing with people who are confused, and there's multiple layers there, and it takes a long time. Usually, usually everyone in a class situation giving their suggestions also tends to just be uh, maybe not the best approach. Sometimes one-on-one -on -one you can get further. Yes? Um, as far as the enlightenment, I certainly have been studying uh, Mary for lots and lots of years. Mm -hmm. We recently, in our women's study, finished a study on the book, The Vine Speaks, John 3, especially verses 1 through 6, I am the vine, ye are the branches. Mm -hmm. Now when we're looking at Mary, it just hit me the other day, out of the root of Jesse uh -huh. came the uh, regrowth in Jesus. And the continuity throughout the Bible is so striking, and it doesn't always hit us. I mean, 70-plus years of, of studying and learning these stories, and it was like an aha. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, there's, uh, there's something like that in our hymnody. I'm trying to think of where, where it is. I want to say off the top of my head, it's uh, Lo, how a rose air bloometh. Mm -hmm. There's some line in there, I won't be able to conjure it up right now, that talks about that, that mystery. It's akin to David's son, yet David's Lord. But it's that the Lord is the one who, uh, gosh, I don't know how to put it, because I don't know the exact language. But from the Lord comes Mary, and from Mary comes the Lord, right? But it's put in very poetic language. It's a fascinating thing to think about. Your comments reminded me of that. Just as a follow-up yeah, to the lady that visited, after we were finished, one-on-one, uh -huh. um, -on -one, I asked her to come join us for church, yeah. you know, so she could hear the word. No, I'm not ready for that. Yeah. So, sad. Yeah, well, it sounds like maybe she's been... Uh, damaged by spiritual malpractice of one form or another. Um, just one word, uh, faith takes trust. Yeah, yeah, that's true. There's, we, um, I, think, I think the Bible uses, well, we know that faith is a gift that comes from God and that uh, saving faith is a gift that comes from God, and that's, that's properly speaking passive. There's also an active side of faith, and that active trusting, um, that's, that's hard work. That's hard work. Um, because very, very, well, I should just say, the nature of faith itself is such that you have to trust in that which is contrary to your reason and senses. Right? You have to simply trust God on his bare word, even though everything you experience is to the contrary. At, at the very heart of Christianity, we do that with the forgiveness of sins. I mean, have you ever stopped to think about why you believe that your sins are forgiven? Because a pastor told you? 
because it's what Jesus says supposedly in this book that then is given to you on Sunday morning in the form of a sacrament? You know, what's, where's the evidence that your sins are forgiven? If, for example, you assume that the wages of sin is death, well, I see that I'm dying every day. Maybe my sins aren't forgiven, right? So the evidence, the experience all around you is that there is no forgiveness of sins, that there is suffering, that there is punishment, that temporal and we would assume eternal, that there is death, that there is sorrow and everything that accompanies it. Um, but there is that word of God that says, no, you are forgiven. And where your sins are forgiven, death has been removed. And where death has been removed, every tear will be wiped away and eternal life will be given. But that's a, that's a promise. That's a, that's a bare word that we believe in, right? Over and against all experience. And then I would say that probably, probably in one, to one degree or another, that's every aspect of our faith. That is having faith in all the articles of, of Christian doctrine is you realize it's just a bare word of promise that's pretty contrary to everything you experience. Only on rare occasions is it not contrary. But usually it is contrary. So yeah, faith, faith can... Uh, that active part of faith um, is, a, is a great struggle and a great wrestle. And you have all sorts of motifs for that in Scripture, don't you? Paul says he beats his body, that he prepares it like an athlete, right? Um, fighting the good fight and the soldier motif. That's faith in action. That's active. It's fighting against the lies of the evil one. And then in the Old Testament, if you view it typologically, impossible odds surround God's people over and over again, whether it be in battle or politically or uh, famine or survival or something like that. And they simply have the word of God that says, in effect, trust me, I've got you taken care of. Sometimes they do, sometimes they don't. Yes? Brings to my mind onward Christian soldiers. Yeah, right. Exactly. Exactly. Okay, well, that's Enlightenment, uh, part one. Let's jump over to page 116, and we'll get a little bit more before we uh, close this out. The last paragraph there on 116. The illumination that we experience through meditation on God's Word does not just affect our thinking. It pervades the whole of us and heals all parts of us. Our souls are revived so that we share more and more in the life of Christ the Son in his fellowship with God the Father. Our minds are transformed so that we think as Christ thinks and see ourselves and others as God the Father sees us. Our hearts are softened so that we become attuned to the heart of God the Father and feel as he does about ourselves and about others. Our bodies are energized so that we live by his grace and work together with him in the world. So as we meditate on his word, we stand in his light and borrow light for ourselves from him. I think there's a nice description of uh, peak spiritual health. It's not always descriptive of every Christian or not always descriptive of certainly myself as I look back on my life. But um, this is, uh, I think, a nice description of, of peak spiritual health. Your heart is attuned to God's heart because your ear and lips are attuned to his word. 
All right, so that's then Christian enlightenment. It doesn't happen on its own. It always happens through the word. And that word is always a Christ-centered, cross-focused type of word uh, wherein we have the forgiveness of sins, the assurance of God's love, and then all the gifts that flow from that. Yes, please. So I'm glad to know that this is the peak of uh, Christian uh, living but the problem is, is when you're not there, you know, uh, that's where you kind of compare and contrast where you are as it, it, to, to something like this, and you come up short, and, right. you know, you need to um, look at something else outside of you. So if you could comment on that. I mean, it's nice to know what's really good, but yeah, not too often are we... Are we there? Right, yeah. yeah. I think, I think a few times would we, maybe a few times, I don't know. Maybe your mileage varies, but uh, at least probably a few times for me is this, is this paragraph really descriptive of me in, in honesty and truth. I, it's not that I fault the paragraph. I would want that more for myself, right? Um, yeah, particularly as we look at those lines, um, our souls are revived so that we share more and more in the life of Christ the Son in his fellowship with God the Father. Our minds are transformed so that we think as Christ thinks and see ourselves and others as God the Father sees us. I mean, those are no small tasks. <laughs> I mean, to see our neighbors as God sees us or as God sees our neighbors, that usually comes to me as a secondary reflection at best, right? Yeah. So is it as God sees us through love? Yeah, or? I think that's his point. Oh, okay. Yeah, as God sees us through the lens of the gospel, yeah, yeah. as forgiven and, yeah. and redeemed and purchased by the blood of Christ, that then we would, we would begin to see others as forgiven, redeemed, purchased by the blood of Christ. And, and that, that being true even for unbelievers and for people who would you know, be our enemies, we would see them as, instead of being valueless or worthless, we would see them as being purchased by the blood of Christ, having that worth and that value. Again, I, maybe this is my own confession, but that tends to be at best a secondary reflection for me after I find myself thinking, uh, you know, in a sinful manner towards someone. Um, then it's no, wait a minute. Um, you know, that parable of the unforgiving servant might pop into your mind in one form or another and you realize the great debts you've been forgiven and here you are. Uh, not being forgiving towards someone else, and then you meditate on uh, th on your on their value and on your own value, uh, not in and of, not in and of ourselves, but that value given to us when Christ purchases us with not with gold or silver, but with His own precious blood. That means infinite value, right? Infinite value. And so, so then that you know that helps you in your thinking. That helps you in, in your praying for them, and um, even as Christ says to pray for our enemies. But that's all a wrestle, isn't it? And maybe, maybe that's my, my statement walking away from that paragraph is it's all put very nicely and at times it may be true, but more often than not, I think that's a great wrestle and a great struggle and a great challenge that we all have to have our souls thus and our minds thus and our hearts, uh, as he says, softened so that we become attuned to the heart of God, the Father, and feel as he does about ourselves and about others. It's uh, a tall order. Is that how God feels towards unbelievers? Is that how we see some through the blood of Christ? 
yes. I mean, there's there's obviously there's obviously um, God desires that all men would be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. And God gave His Son for the, to make atonement for the sins of all, and and so God wills that all would be saved. Uh, in this sense, the law, His His wrath and accusation is is an alien work. Uh, he only uses that for the sake of driving them to the gospel, for the sake of their salvation. That's the proper way of understanding those things. Yeah. And then, of course, if they choose wrath in the end, and they choose to be judged not by the righteousness of Christ, but by the righteousness of the law, uh, then God gives them, in effect, what they want, what they've insisted upon. Um, and their God, too, in, in effect, is... I mean, depending on how you perceive it, it gets a little semantic, but even that is, is sort of gracious, that God doesn't force creatures to his will in that respect, but says, fine, you can have it your way if you really want it that way. I'm just going back to uh, Annette's reference to a friend of hers. Um, I would say to this person, too, the thief on the cross gave this desperate cry. You remember me when you come into your kingdom. And mm -hmm. it seems like such a little thing. Mm -hmm. But it was a great thing. So this person who doubts this can take, excuse me, comfort in that. But I also think of the... Uh, and I know hardly any, I, I know nothing about Descartes, except he's associated with the phrase, I think, therefore I am. But evidently, he had a great struggle in realizing whether he was alive or not, and, you know, whether he existed. And maybe that's the struggle that we experience. We say, well, am I a Christian, you know? And we try to examine our eyes, as C.S. Lewis says, you're trying to discover your eyes. You're seeing the world already. You're alive. You're already there. Mm -hmm. But we go through that struggle. Anyway. Yeah, yeah. That's where God in his grace turns us outside of ourselves to what he has done for us and then lets our faith trust in that or to use Lewis' analogy, our, our eyes are then seeing and receiving that, right? And it stops the internal struggle, which is impossible. Well, let's go over then to the example of Mary, and we'll uh, we'll touch briefly on this. I don't I don't mean to skip over it too quickly, but Mary is a is a great example of Christian piety and and meditation. Let's begin at the beginning on one sixteen. In his gospel, Luke portrays Mary, the mother of Jesus, as a person who practiced the art of meditation. The Holy Spirit made her pregnant with Jesus when the angel spoke the word of God to her. When she heard the word of God, it, didn't, it did not go in one ear and out the other. Instead, she truly heard it and kept it in her heart. That qualified her to receive the commendation of her son. When the angel announced the conception of Jesus to Mary, she accepted the word of God, even though she did not understand it. She trusted the will of God, like a slave who trusted her master. She believed that God's word would find its fulfillment in her. So she said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. She was happy to let God take over the management of her life. She was happy to receive everything from him. And that, too, is our basic stance when we meditate. 
we shift from doing and giving to being and receiving in God's presence. Maybe we'll drop down to the next paragraph. This picture of Mary as a model of meditation is sketched out more fully in two other places. In chapter 219, Luke tells us that Mary treasured up the words of Christ's birth, pondering them in her heart. She realized that there was much more to the birth of her son than met her naked eye. She therefore kept puzzling over what had happened to her in the light of the shepherd's report about the message from the angels. She tried to make sense of it for herself by mulling over it and reviewing the whole story in her mind. So, again, in that idea of Mary's faith and faithfulness to that word, you think of what, you know, what a small word she had in effect uh, coming from the angel and then coming from the shepherds. And over and against that word, I think often we overlook the, the shame that people might have tried to afflict upon Mary, given that to human eyes and to the human way of looking at things, she, she was having a child outside of wedlock. And she was claiming it was the Holy Spirit. So not only was she an adulterer, but a blasphemer, and trying to cover her own sins with the most outrageous of, of lies. And it's, it's into that, that shame. You know, there's a, when they find, a, they go into Bethlehem and there was no room in the inn, it's probably a mistranslation of inn, so there weren't like Hampton Inns or uh, Ayers Hotels there in Bethlehem. There was nothing like that. Uh, but Joseph had relatives there. It was, it was the house of David, and, Dave, and Joseph's family was there. The fact that they have no room, that the family has no room for them, says less about like the family just being like, you know, oh, well, we're too busy with dinner. Why do you think they had no room for them? <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Being embarrassed and ashamed, and it's, there's an accusation. Um, no, no, you're not coming under our roof. You're an adulterer, and you, Joseph, you know, your wife's an adulterer, and you're and you're deceived, and uh, or maybe it's yours. Who knows? But um, yeah, that, that was probably why there was no room for them in the inn. That is, no room for them in the houses. And so you think of the shame even of that night of the birth. And then not long after that, it comes the attack of Herod. And they've got to flee for their lives to Egypt. And I mean, all of these contrary things like, really, God, this is how you bring your son into the world? <laughs> and this is what we have to bear and put up with? Uh, so it's an amazing faith that Mary and Joseph have. But here we're focused on Mary, that she takes those words of God, few though they were, clings to them, ponders them in her heart, treasures them, and believes in them over and against all that she's experiencing. It's really remarkable. It's why we really, frankly, can't praise Mary highly enough as a, as a human saint. Uh, she's, she's foremost. So we glimpse this here uh, via Luke and uh, Kleinig. And maybe that's all I have to say, unless you have anything to say about uh, Mary or her pondering or treasuring these things in her heart. And, and I just would want to just emphasize more what you brought up. I think at the birth of Christ, when the shepherds came, this was confirmation to Mary that what she'd been told was really true. So that may well have sustained her through all the horror they had to go through, mm -hmm. and embarrassment and shame. Oh, yeah. Yeah. 
I, I think uh, Elizabeth and I have been experiencing this recently, and I know there's the time when there's no, no confirmation, like Christ had no confirmation on the cross. But it's a wonderful thing when you go through it. You, it's, uh, you see the intersection in your life of things you, you recognize. This is just what we've been talking about, and things pile up, and you say, "Oh, this is really great," you know, and you see this working. Mm-hmm. It's as though God puts it right in front of your path, and I used to discredit it. I used to say, oh, that's just coincidental. But I don't think it's coincidental uh-huh. anymore. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. He's piling things in front of us. And mo- most of the time we don't see it, I guess. And then one day you start, oh, yeah, that's right. <laughs> Let's go over to uh, receiving the word on page 118. St. James tells us, receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. In this he seems to recall the parable of the sower. The picture is quite clear. The word of God is like a seed that is planted in our souls. It is a life-giving, productive word that has in it the power to save us from spiritual death and to heal us completely. Its power is the Holy Spirit that animates and pervades it. We do not grow ourselves nor do we grow by ourselves. The word helps us grow spiritually, yet that growth does not occur automatically. Once we have become disciples of Christ, we are called to receive the word of God that implants in us, the word that God uses to save us and keep us safe. We receive the word not just once, but again and again, and that calls for meekness from us the meekness of those who acknowledge that they have nothing to give and everything to receive from God, the meekness of those who are not self-righteous and proud, the meekness of those who are ready to listen and willing to learn, the meekness of those who rely on Christ and trust his word. So that's the proper approach to our hearing and to our reading, to our studying God's word. You know, how often we become impatient. Well, that's not what I need to hear or this says nothing, or this has nothing for me, or um, I need something else. I need to hear something else or learn something else. Uh, St. James would, encourages us, would encourage us toward a, an attitude of meekness and humility to receive the gift that the Lord has for you there. And it may not be what you perceive, but your perception may be what's wrong. It may truly, in fact, be what you need. So, it has to do with our attitude as we receive the Word of God and, and treasure it, truly treasure it. Um, over on page 119, uh, let's look at that first full paragraph. We receive the implanting of God's Word by going to church regularly. There that Word is spoken to us in the sermon. That Word is given to us in Holy Communion. The divine service is thus the school for Christian meditation its proper context. There we receive meditation as a gift. There we learn to meditate for ourselves as the Holy Spirit does his work in us while we listen to God's word. The beauty of that arrangement is that it requires so little from us in time and effort and ability. Have you seen those calculations where people add up all the hours that you, if you went to church every Sunday, uh, I don't know what it is. It's like, and I forget what the calculation is, but it's a couple hundred hours. And then you compare it to all the other hours. <laughs> and then all the other hours you do spending other things, eating, 
going to the bathroom, <laughs> sitting in traffic, etc. And you realize that your time with God's word is paltry, even if you're there every Sunday. Anyway, if you, see, if you, if you have one of those memes, keep it on your desktop. It's good to remind yourself. So let's continue. Um, we do not need to set out quite deliberately to meditate. <laughs> That's good advice. <laughs> Now's my meditation time. Uh, we do not even need to decide what to do or how to do it. It is given to us. It happens to us so easily that we are mostly unaware of what is happening to us. All that is required of us is to set aside that time from our weekly routine to attend church and to receive what is given to us. By doing this, we simply exercise our faith in Christ. Since the whole of the divine service enacts the word of God, any part of it may trigger a train of meditation in us, whether it is the confession of sins or the hymns, the readings from the scriptures or the blessings that are spoken to us. Yet we are most likely to enter a state of meditation during the sermon. <laughs> yes, meditation is what we call it. As we relax physically and listen to what is said, that's where we can expect the Holy Spirit to preach to us and stimulate us to meditate. Hence, it is common for pastors to introduce their sermons with a prayer that is derived from Psalm 19.14, Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. All right. So there's a biblical precedent and foundation. Um, so I think, I think Kleinig's, the, you know, the key point, if I were to have a take-home point for this section, uh, the key point is just exposure. Exposure to God's word over and over and over. Let the seed fall and the seed fall and the seed fall and eventually that seed takes root. And then if we were to have a second point to that, it would be to not just come and expect it to happen automatically, but to approach that hearing uh, with a certain caution, being careful how it is that we hear, that we're not covering over that word, but that, that we're letting that word have its way with us and we're receiving it in meekness, you know, as, as beggars receiving priceless jewels or uh, as, um, you know, starving people receiving delicious morsels of food that we savor it and cherish it and uh, you know, not, just, not just consume it thoughtlessly. Um, but I think that that would be the main points uh, that Kleinig's trying to get through to us in these sections. I love what it goes on to say that when you get distracted or your thoughts wander, that that's actually the Holy Spirit. Yeah, it can be. It can be. It can also be the unholy spirit. <laughs> I like to think of it positively now. Though. My thoughts would always wonder as a young child to the video games I was trying to beat. And as I got older and clever, I would uh, bring the manuals for the video games that you know taught you the hints and tips and slide it inside my hymnal so that I could uh, be meditating uh, <laughs> on the one thing needful during the sermon. Um, but at any rate, yeah, that's... Uh, what you said is true. <laughs> okay, so um, so over to, let's see, where are we? Are we still receiving the word? Yeah, we're still receiving the word. Pastor, I, I want, I'm talking too much, I know, but when you said that, one, I, when I would go to church as a little kid, and our, my mom would let us, you know, draw pictures on paper and stuff. And that's what I thought I was doing. Mm -hmm. But I saw one of my papers, 
when I was older. And I was amazed because I was drawing the altar and all that, you know, the, the candlelight, I had all these details on it. And I realized in its own little way it was getting into my brain. That's exactly right. Uh, so, so as long as we're not meditating on the wrong thing, but having that kind of busy work is really helpful, even for kids. I, sometimes adults even doodle and all that, you know, or you kind of stare around, but you're still listening and absorbing. And um, I mean, as, as a preacher, just to be very honest, when I see people with their heads down or appearing that they're distracted, kids always appear like they're distracted. Um, that doesn't bother me in the least. Uh, the children are such a great example of that because they're absorbing tons of it when you don't even expect them to be. You know, I, I grew up in a church that was a, I don't know, kind of a more traditional church. It had these huge, like this huge archway, like arch ceiling kind of, and uh, but all along the, all along up to the top, to the ceiling, of the walls were bricks. And you could, you could count, right? But then your eyes would start to get like almost dizzied and you couldn't count them all the way up. So I'd always try to do this like every service. But as I was doing that, in the background, in is coming the Word of God and you're meditating on that and you're thinking about that and that's distracting you and you're listening on it and daydreaming about it and then you're back to counting the bricks again. You know, all that to say that I'm sure to the preacher I looked like a kid just staring at the wall. Uh, but I was... Ended up absorbing a lot of it. I think that's true for all of us. So that that exposure, that just taking it in over and over again, that's the key. That's the key. Okay, let's um, let's see. We've got five minutes left, and we're in this section receiving the word. Let's see where we want to go. Let's go over to uh, one twenty-two, and this will be a good way to close out our uh, our reading for today. So here, Kleinig. I think talks about his own personal practice of daily devotion and of meditation. So your mileage may vary, uh, but this at least gives you something concrete in terms of the daily practice of this, as opposed to just the divine service practice, the Sunday morning practice we've been talking about. All right, so top of 122, he introduces this. To begin with, I call on the triune God in prayer and ask for the guidance of the Holy Spirit. Then I relax for a while, making myself totally at ease. I wait silently on the Lord. As I wait, I let my thoughts and feelings come and go as they please, without censoring them or allowing them to claim my attention. Gradually, my mind stops racing about. I become still. When each train of thought has run its course, I focus back on the Father's presence and remain with Him, knowing that He sees me entirely and is pleased with me. I don't demand anything from him, but adopt a listening stance. Like young Samuel, I say, Speak, Lord, for your servant hears. Then, when a sense of stillness has come upon me, I read the psalm set for the week and the passages set for the day in my Bible reading schedule. I read slowly and attentively, moving my lips, alert for when God addresses me with what he wishes to give me to take with me through the day. When something strikes me in my conscience, I stop there and dwell on it, circling around it, looking at it from all sides and repeating it to myself. I let it speak to me physically, emotionally, imaginatively, and intellectually. I chew at it and savor it and react to it. I don't worry if I don't complete the set reading. If nothing strikes me, I go to the end of the readings. 
Then I pause for a while to let it sink in. Sometimes I revisit something I initially passed over. Other times I read other related passages. In all this, God's word sets the agenda for me. I follow as I am led. I like that thought especially, that God's word sets the agenda for us and we follow as we're led. In all this, I pray as I am prompted, in thanksgiving for God's gifts to me, in confession of my sins, in petition for my needs, in intercession for other people, and in adoration of the triune God. But I don't rush into prayer or pray according to any set scheme. I assume that I don't know how to pray or what to pray for. Instead, I look for guidance from God's Word and the Holy Spirit. Praying, then, comes as a gift rather than a demand. Most often, I respond to what God says to me by turning whatever is given to me into a prayer. My purpose in all this is to let uh, God brief and equip me for the day ahead so that I may live in his presence and orient the whole day around him. Okay, so again, your mileage may vary, your personal practice may be quite different, this might not fit with your personality. Be that as it may, you at least have a concrete example and some concrete advice here uh, in regard to thinking uh, about how one meditates. And I think that... uh, Maybe in particular, in particular, the Psalms uh, lend themselves to this, particularly, um, again, at the bottom of 122, in all this I pray as I am prompted, and then he goes on to say, in thanksgiving, in confession of sin, in petition for needs, in intercession for others, and in adoration to the triune God, the Psalms will uh, evoke that in you as you read them. You might even say to yourself, in one of those parts that's particularly the son speaking to the father, you might say, well, I could never pray that prayer because I am sinful. Perfect opportunity to confess your sins. Perfect opportunity to remember that God does hear you because he has united and joined you with Christ so that his word is your word and his innocence and righteousness is your innocence and righteousness. And then to move on in your meditation and prayer in just that sort of way. All right, well, uh, we are right at the end of time, so I'll have to listen to your thoughts and reflections on this section off the record. Uh, Let's look next week, then, at 123. And let's say that we're... How are we liking the pace? Is it okay? Let's just say we're going to go over to 133. We'll go a little ways into that uh, section, a manual for meditation. So just, uh, we'll introduce it anyway. 123 to 133. The Lord be with you.